You're listening to Church of the Oaks podcast, where we exist to send disciple makers of Jesus by being disciple makers of Jesus. For more information about our church, such as service times, upcoming events, or how to join a group, please visit us at churchoftheoaks.com. We're in this sermon series called The Whole Story, which is an ambitious project for us as a church where we, um, we've decided, hey, look, so for us to grasp the, the fullness of what God's doing, um, then we need to grasp the fullness of his story. So we started at the very beginning. Um, actually, we started in Jesus describing the whole story. But anyway, then we went to the very beginning uh, last week, looking at the, the account of creation and what that means for us. That was a nine-point sermon. Um, so uh, there, was some, there was some thoughts in there. Uh, it's not an easy thing to try to encapsulate creation. Um, and this week, we're covering what, uh, what followed, which is uh, pivotal for you to understand the rest of the story. Uh, for you to understand, like the links that God is going to, for you to understand like your place in the story, for you to understand the, um, the immensity of what you're up against. Um, this passage is, uh, it can, the importance of it cannot be overstated. It's, it's, it's the crux. It's the, it's the problem um, that infects each and every one of us is the problem that faces you right there where you sit. It's the problem which Jesus himself uh, had to figure out um, or had to, had to come to rectify. Uh, so as we look at the whole story, this is one of the most important passages in, in the whole story. Uh, because this one uh, specifically and personally impacts every one of us and every aspect of creation. So if you remember, uh, if, you're, if you're here last week and remember what we talked about, we talked about how God, um, in the beginning, God created, that, that God is a creator God, and he created in a way that he called good. In six days, he created, and in the seventh, he rested, and he placed um, Adam and Eve, which we're going to talk about in just a second, in this beautiful place of blessing and provision of closeness with the Father. Like we, it's, a, it's a picture of beauty. It's a picture of perfection. So God creates and he blesses his creation. And last week we talked about the purpose behind that. For all, that all this was the purpose of God being glorified. And the one way that God is glorified is through his people as they're just glorifying him by enjoying him forever. That was the intent, that God was creating these people who were gonna get to glorify him by just enjoying him. That was the purpose, that was the plan, that was the way this was supposed to go. Now, it's interesting if you think about this, like for, for people to be able to glorify God by enjoying him forever, they needed something really important. Like they needed to be in, in, endowed with something like incredibly in, important because for them to glorify him, they have to have the option of not glorifying. They had to have choice. So God creates these people, but as the passage begins to unfold, we start to see that God not only blesses, not only provides, but he also provides choice. So they have the option to glorify because without the option of it, there is no glory for it. They're robots. Like I have a little robot in my house. Uh, those little like Roomba things. Mine's not a Roomba. It's like a fake Roomba um, because that's how I'm living. You know what I'm saying? Uh, any of y'all have one of those things? Just show of hands if you have that little round disc that runs around your home. Yeah. You'll get there. The rest of you will get there one day, and um, your life will be better for it. It's an incredible thing, all right? Like, 
we've had a lot of great innovations in the world. This is the best, okay? There's this little tiny robot, this little circle guy, and he just roams around your house whenever you tell it to and picks up all your stuff. It also picks up all of your iPhone cords, but that's a separate issue. Uh, but I have this little app, you know, and like from here at my house, like from, from here I can, I can communicate with my robot and I can say, hey robot, clean the house. And in my home with no one there right now, the little voice will come out of it and it'll say, starting to clean, right? And it's just, I love that because that means I don't have to, which is great. Now I'm not honored by the fact that the robot does what I told it to, you know? I don't, I don't like, I don't like, I don't feel like, you know, that robot really respects me. You know, we've got, we've built a really solid relationship uh, now so that the robot, you know, we're in sync, you know, it's, there's not a lot of like rebellion in the robot anymore. We've gotten past that. We've got a solid thing going. So out of the abundance of respect and honor, no, man, it's just a robot. It does what I say. All right. God didn't create you as a robot. He gave you the choice to glorify him, to honor him or not. Because without that choice, you can't really honor him. So God creates these people, and then they have the option of exercising their choice. To draw near, to worship, to glorify the one who has blessed and provided everything they could possibly need. They also have some decisions to make. They're going to make a decision that is going to impact every aspect of creation. They're going to make a decision that's going to impact you personally, your nature your heart, your connection to God, your connection to each other. It's going to impact your eternity. It's a decision that echoes inside of every single one of us this morning. The passage begins in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. Let me just pause on that while you're looking for Genesis 2, 4, okay? We're going to cover a lot of scripture. We're covering a lot of stuff. Um, I just want to give you this a word of encouragement. Take some notes all right, like I'm not a good sermon listener. I zone out all the time when I'm having to do what you're doing right now. I get it, all right? I do my best to try to help you hang in there. But like you need to like, write some stuff down. Uh, so, uh, and the worship guide's got some, a sermon notes section on the back of it. You can use that. I always end up throwing those away. They end up under my seat in a ball. So like if you got a notes app, if you got a journal, bring those things, take some notes. It'll help you if you get to, if you're in a tribe or a huddle, it'll help you as you're discussing those things there as well. You just need, like, if we're covering something that's helpful, man, make that sticky, write some things down, okay? All right, anyway, Genesis chapter two, beginning in verse four. These are the generations of the heavens when they were created, on the day that the Lord God made the earth and heavens, when the bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field. My microphone's doing that thing again, y'all. Is it driving you nuts? Okay. Um, I'll get that one. We'll try that one. Mobile church. You know where our church is two and a half years old? Do you know that? Do you know that we don't own this facility? And that, uh, and that uh, that's not our jumbotron? Um, but... Uh, that means that when you set everything up and tear everything down every week, it causes some problems. So let's try this. One, two, one, two. All right. Now, if this, one, uh, if this one punks out on us, we'll just be yelling. It'll be great. All right. I think we're like around verse five. Genesis 2, five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God, he formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God, he planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All right, so you see, you see like God doing some of your God's, he's creating man. He placed him in a garden. That garden's called Eden and everything he needed was provided. That's the intent. All right, verse 10 says this, says a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and it became four rivers. Just fun fact, we got like the sixth church in our network is gonna be called Five Rivers. Uh, it's in Mobile. I thought it was because of this passage because there's the one river becoming four rivers, there's five rivers. And I was like, is that what it's about? And he's like, no, there's just five rivers in Mobile. I was like, well, <laughs> this is cooler. You should go with this. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he's like, I didn't even know there's five rivers going out of Eden. I'm like, well, read your Bible. Anyway. He doesn't listen to our podcast. I can say that. It's fine. Uh, verse 11. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havala, where there's gold. And the gold, uh, that land is good. Uh, Delium and onyx stone are there. And the stone of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Uh, and the name of the third river is the Tigris. flows around Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. All right. Um, that's there. And the reason I read that to you is because this is written as a literal place in a literal time with geographic description of it, all of which will get transformed like a flood, but like this is intended to be not taken as a metaphor, like this is intended to be a real thing, all right? Verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God, he commanded the man saying, you may eat, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gives Adam one command. Just one. Not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's one command. There's choice in this. God has given him everything he needs, given him a relationship with him. He's provided for him over and abundantly, right? There's this one command command, one point of choice, to obey or not. And he gives a consequence up here at the front. He gives a consequence if Adam chooses to disobey him. Like right here in the beginning, God has created his image bearer, Adam. He's blessed him. He's provided for him and given him the choice to glorify him by obeying him. But God wasn't even done blessing Adam. Verse 18, he continues. Verse uh, says this, the, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought him to the man to see what he'd call him and whatever the man called every living creature. That was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of heaven and beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with uh, flesh, and the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought her to man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the first time God calls something not good. I would really love to get to like, do a whole like, 
sermon or series or something on marriage is out of this passage. Like, it is not good for man to be alone, so God brings forth woman, and finally it is fully good. You can sense, like, the elation in Adam in this. Like, it's the same, you can see that same elation on the face of every one of them boys in here when one of them girls, like, pays attention to you, right? All the rest of us, like, see that reflection in you. It's adorable. We like it. Um, but <laughs> anyway, we, we can't keep, it's so a turn 24. He says, therefore, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. It's a picture of God's intent for marriage. The whole marriage series. And that's the passage, like if, if one day I get to do your wedding, um, this is the passage we're opening with because this is God's intent. Two people in the garden, blessed by God, provided for in every way, just knowing him, knowing each other perfectly. There is no separation. There's no disunity. It's perfect. That's the way it was supposed to be. Think about the goodness that God has brought to be just so far in our story, right? He's created over six days. He rested one of them to show us that we get to rest in him. He brought Adam and Eve together. He's blessed them. He's provided for them. In unity, they're walking with him. They're walking with each other in this perfect love and provision of God. There's something in each and every one of us that longs for that. This lightness, this holiness, this perfect relationship with anyone. And when we read these words, what happens to me, what happens, I think, to a lot of us is we read this, and this sounds gut-wrenchingly good. Something in us, like, echo, like, longs for, for that. We know, like, that, like, something in us, like, recognizes that this is the way it was supposed to be, and we are so far from it, impossibly far. Everything was as it was intended to be, but don't forget, God has also given them choice. He's given them the choice to honor him. He's given them the choice to glorify him, to obey him, or not. Sometime later, the scene changes. You get to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, and a new character is introduced. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. All right? Some of you know where the story is going, so let's just handle some issues up front. All right, what's the deal with the serpent? All right, why is it, why is it there? What's, what's going on with him? Well, we know that because the serpent was there, it must have been created on the sixth day along with all the other things that were crawling around. You know? So I created it. But even more, when he was created, it was called good. But something has happened since that point. Somewhere between like the events of everything perfect in the beginning and then by the time you get to Genesis 3, something has transpired. There's been an unsuccessful coup in heaven. So other things are going on out of sight of the garden, some terrible things, some things that are uh, uh, gut-wrenching. Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14, they both give us glimpses into the fall of Satan. Both give you a glimpse. You can go study it on your own. I don't have time to do it today. But they give you glimpses in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 of the fall of Satan, where there was this angel who sought to ascend higher than the heavens. That's what it says. He sought to ascend higher than the heavens and set his throne above the most highs. There was one who wanted to be not just on par with God. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be greater than and sought to elevate himself over God himself. 
And so he was cast out of heaven, out of God's presence, and we see him show up for the first time here, controlling the serpent, seeking to bring chaos, seeking to break what God had created. All right? Now notice how Satan begins the conversation in verse 1, in the second half of verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's asking questions. He's looking for a soft spot so he can sow deceptions. He's looking for space to get to do his will, testing. Eve answers mostly correctly. In verse 2, she says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of uh, the, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve's mostly right, right? She's, she's mostly got it. Like she's, she's added a little bit, but she's mostly there. She's added this part about touching the tree. That's not in there, right? Uh, maybe Adam and Eve had decided not to even go near the thing, but that's not exactly what God said. Not verbatim. She's added a little bit to his word, and the enemy, the, say, like the, the serpent, has an opportunity. This little slight misunderstanding. The enemy can do a lot with a misunderstanding of God's word. Still at that, like still doing that stuff. You see him do it, try to do it with Jesus later. The enemy can do a lot with a little misunderstanding of God's word. I can't tell you the number of conversations I have, I've had with people where God's word had been twisted, misused in their life, or even by them with disastrous effects for them. The enemy looks for an opportunity, finds it. And then strikes. Verse 4 says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's raising doubt. He's calling God into question, right? He's declaring that God has lied. That's what he's basically saying. Saying, like, you will not surely die. He's putting this thought into her mind of what if God is lying to you? What if, what if he's hiding? Like, he's saying, like, no, like God knows that when you eat of it, you'll get even more good. He's saying, like, God has lied to you. He's withholding goodness from you. Like, can you really trust him? Because that thing is beautiful. Like, how dare he, you know? Just slipping a question of doubt into her mind. That's the core question the enemy places in your mind and mine as well. Is God really good? Can he really be trusted? Is there actually something better that he's just trying to hold us back for, to exert control over us because he wants to be in charge? Is God really good? Satan's working to fracture this trust between Adam and Eve that they had in in God. And this this little question is the tool that he used to fracture it. It's the same thing he does with you. Satan was cast out for rivaling God, right? Like wanting to supersede the, the, the Father, and that's exactly what he's doing now. He's inciting Adam and Eve to do the same, to rise above him. Like he says, you'll be like God. The hard part about this story is that Adam and Eve were created to enjoy and reflect God like, in his fullness. They were created to get to enjoy him and reflect him. And the enemy shows up and says, no, no, instead of enjoying and reflecting him, you can be him. 
That's the same thing that happens in each and every one of us. Instead of just enjoying and reflecting him, no, no, I want to be more than that. I want to be him. And so a lot of us have superseded God in our own ways, in our own lives, replacing him with ourselves as the God of our little universe. The same lie that grips Adam and Eve grips us. Keep in mind who this is. Like the one who wanted to be God is the one telling them you'll be like God. Did he achieve it? No. Are they going to achieve it? No. But that's not the point anymore. Since Satan can't be God, all he can do is just remove as much glory from God as he possibly can by separating God from his kids. So in an instant, with one question, with one statement, Satan moved Eve and Adam with her, doing nothing, being passive, moved them from, this is God's command. Moved them all the way from that to, why is God keeping this from us? Satan does the same thing to us. So in doubt, twisting God's word, making us wonder if, there's, if God is withholding something, if there's something better beyond or apart from him that we can go pursue. Like, this happens all the time. Where this question, like, well, God is love, right? And so if God is love, then why wouldn't he be okay with my relationship? It's a twisting of words. If God said this is wrong, then he's not good. I've declared that what God has said is wrong, that he is wrong about what's wrong, so then he can't be God, now I'm God. I'm going to stand in judgment of his judgments. I see that all the time in tons of different topics. If God's in control, right? If he's in control, then he's responsible for my pain, and I'm out. If he's, if he's the guy, if, if he's in control and he's responsible for my pain, then I, I'm out. I'm going to place blame on him for what I'm going through. God had given Adam and Eve power over all creation, but that wasn't enough. They wanted more. He'd given them reign over everything, but that wasn't enough. They wanted more. He had blessed them with each other in a perfect union, but they wanted more. He had blessed them with his presence. They still wanted more, and so do we. So they went beyond his commands because they thought that happiness and truth were beyond him. And this is what happens. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed some fig leaves together and they made themselves some loincloths. So Eve, she eats of the, the fruit, gives it to Adam. And both, both had this categorical shift from the ones who were enjoying and glorifying God. Now they were the ones standing in disobedience of God. In just a moment, in a choice. And so they, they, they felt shame in their nakedness. Like immediately they want to cover themselves up. They want to hide themselves. They need to hide themselves from this one that is holy, right? Distance exists between them and God for the first time. Everything had changed in that moment. Not just for them, though. Like everything had changed like in creation. Sin had entered the world for the very first time. 
Innocence was lost. It was this fracture, this like crack that would end up shattering all of the goodness that God had intended for his people. The perfect relationship between God and his people shattered. The perfect relationship between people and creation shattered. The perfect relationship between just people, interpersonal relationships, that, the, the, perf- the unity that was supposed to be intended there shattered when sin entered the world. The most heartbreaking, um, the most heartbreaking scene unfolds from this point where there's these two people who are supposed to have this perfect, open relationship with God, like this like, loving relationship with him, um, hear him coming in the garden. It says this, says, uh, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Which, just stop right there, just imagine, just like those of you who are believers, even those of you who are not, just think about how, like, the goodness of that. God just strolling through the garden with you in the cool of the day. That's what we're made for. That's the kind of relationship we're intended to have. And in eternity, we'll have. It continues. It says, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord, he's walking, he's looking for him. God calls out to the man and he says, where are you? That's heartbreaking. The guy that created these two, like to have this perfect relationship with him, like all of a sudden, like sin has shattered perfect. It was broken. It was undone. It's obvious the first moment God walks into the garden, they have to, they have to remove themselves in shame. The thing that was supposed to be this source of joy and provision for them now produced distance and shame. The same thing happens in rooms like this all the time. I talk to people like, like, like have a hard time stepping into a church service and are around believers of any kind because there's this repulsion that happens where it seems like they've got it all together, but I don't. I know the stuff that happened to me this past week. I know the things that I chose to do, and like I can't be around him, and I definitely can't be around them. Sometimes this happens when, when you make it into a place like this, hoping that God's going to do something in you, that he's going to provide some little glimmer of hope until you like somehow get up the courage to get in here. And then once you're in here, God starts doing something in your heart. The spirit starts moving. Like, like oh, I want to know him. I want to draw near to him. But there's this fear that sends you running into the bushes. Have you felt yourself hiding from God? That's the heartbreaking thing about the fall. And God calls out, where are you? Why are you hiding? Everything had changed. Verse 10 says this. Adam finally comes out. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, well, the woman whom you gave me, she, she gave me the fruit, the tree, and I ate. And Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And she said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adam is confronted by God, doesn't take responsibility. Instead, he blames God. Well, this is your fault. You gave me her. She told me to do it. This is kind of your fault, and if it's mostly hers too, it's definitely not mine. 
And, and God turns to Eve, and she's like, don't look at me. You put this snake in the garden, like, you should kind of get a fence or something, bro. I don't know what you're doing. Like, this is pretty much all on you, God, you know? We're just innocent bystanders. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah, I got my life's a mess. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. But, like, honestly, I mean, like, you know, the way I was brought up, the, the people that are around me, if you knew the people, if you knew, you'd understand. Maybe it's culture. Yeah, I know, but like everything in our culture says this. And so like how would, I mean, of course, no. There's something in all of us that wants to keep keep claiming the righteousness that we had in the garden, meanwhile walking in the sin that banishes us from it. Doesn't that sound familiar? Like you end up hiding, doubting, mistrusting. Even if you're a believer, we still like struggle to trust him. And a lot of times we somehow find a way to blame everybody else for our mistrust of him than our Selves. Do you find yourselves doubting the, the goodness of God like Adam and Eve did? Like maybe he's keeping something from me. Some of us, like, even we're struggling, you know, what, what also was talking about, what, how, when, what God's calling us into, whether if that's like a leadership position in our church or vocational ministry or mission, like whatever, anything that God would be calling you into. Sometimes there's this sneaking suspicion that God's going to call you into something terrible. So we're afraid to pray that God would call us into it because we don't trust that what he calls us into would actually be good. We're out here worried God's going to call us to do something horrible, detrimental to us. That's the fall. Does it sound familiar that of people like refusing to admit brokenness, blaming everything and everyone around them, holding on to their rightness the whole time? It's their fault. God's standing here. He's looking at these two people, his kids, his children, who created in love to glorify him, to enjoy him. He's standing there looking at them, these people created in his image, whom he loves perfectly, now blaming him for their sin. That's heartbreaking. The choice that Adam and Eve had made had resulted in the choice to sin, and that sin shattered everything. It shattered their relationship with the Father. It shattered their relationship with each other. It shattered their relationship with creation. And it shattered it for good. Or so it would seem. Like God had told them, the choice to disobey, the choice to sin, it comes with consequences, right? He lined this out for Adam at the very front. Like, if you choose to disobey, like, there's going to be consequences for that. There are consequences for sin. And so God begins to line these out, tears in his eyes, like... It's not the way it was supposed to be. This is what he says in 14. He says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now to the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing. and pain you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be contrary to your husband and she'll rule over you and Adam he said because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I have commanded you you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
Now, the man called his wife uh, named Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife, made him garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing of good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's so many things we could talk about in that. And maybe in tribe, you want to take some of those things apart. Maybe some of the time on your own, you want to read through this a little bit deeper. But simply put, there are consequences for sin. Eve, her consequences are pains multiplied in childbearing. There's going to be hostility between wife and husband that was never meant to be there. Married couples, when the hostility wells up, that's the fall. Adam, creation was literally altered. Work, which was supposed to be this joy for him, is now going to be taxing, is going to be difficult, and then both end up banished from the garden, separated from God, and guarded from eternal life, an eternal life of sin. It's all consequences that we still live under. The serpent, he's cursed to slither in the dirt, but the one controlling the serpent, that's the one I want to focus on. God voices this declaration of hostility to him, like specifically between the offspring of this woman and Satan himself. He like, it's a declaration of war between the two of them. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your, uh, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now, the importance of that statement cannot be overstated, all right? Like in the NIV, it, it puts it a little bit differently. It puts like some of the, the thrust behind these words. NIV says, he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. There's something happening right there, this declaration of war before they've even left the garden where God is saying, like, in the end, I will fix this. In the end, I will defeat and destroy you. In the middle of God laying out these consequences for sin, there's this glimmer of hope. It's the first promise of a Messiah. It's his first messianic promise of a Savior. God's saying, listen, in a time that you do not know, in a way that you could not predict, I will send a descendant of this family to rectify what's been shattered today. You'll strike him in the heel, and it'll be a painful blow for a moment, but the victory is going to be his. He's going to strike you in a way that you will never recover from. Satan surely thought he'd won the day, right? He's, he's, he's thinking he's won the day. He's separated Adam and Eve from, from the Father and knows what that's going to mean for creation. Like, like he's won a battle that day. And God shows up and says, this is not over. In a normal story, that would be the end, though. And in a normal story, the end would be that this creation was beautiful and perfect and sin came in and shattered it and God in his holiness separated from people and left them to what they deserved. That's how the story should have ended if it was fair. But thankfully, God is not interested in fair. God is interested in his holiness and his power, his glory, his people getting to enjoy him. He's coming back for his kids. And you see a promise of that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Christians, This story, when I read it, makes me reassess if there's any lies that I'm believing about the Father. 
there's any lies that I'm believing about the God whom I've trusted. It makes me search my heart to see if there's ways that I'm distancing myself or hiding from him and, and like moving away from him or looking for things in, like, to be good or better than what he's provided for me. I look for echoes. I think there's probably some ways that you're hiding from the Lord this morning. I think there's probably some things going on in your life where you're trying to seek out good for yourself apart from him, beyond him, questioning whether he really wants what's best for you. I think there's probably some ways that someone, even yourself, has twisted some of God's word and you're pursuing things in the way that you want them to be instead of him. I think sometimes we end up creating a whole different version of God than the actual, like, than who, who he actually says he is. And we're willing to follow this fake version instead of what he says in his word. Christians, would you search your heart this morning for anything between you and the one who has saved you? Would you just deal with that right there where you are, like, like not allow the enemy a foothold in your relationship this morning? Would you do some work right there on your own heart and just confess sin, confess distance? Like, would you do that work and draw near to the one who loves you, provides for you, wants a relationship with you? Would you do that work? Now, those of you in the room who aren't Christians yet, like, listen, like, I know, um, I know that you know that your world is shattered in more ways than one. I know that you can look out and you can see uh, destruction in a whole different, like, like, so many different ways. Now, I don't know what you've been attributing all of that to. We're going to attribute to the sin of people. That there's something in each and every one of us that is twisted and broken, not as it's intended to be. And it is shattered everything in the way that it was. I know that it seems hopeless sometimes. I know that you're probably doing the best you can to put the pieces back together and make a semblance of a life in the midst of all of the mess. I, I, I get it. I remember that. I know how frustrating that is to toil and strive, try to put these pieces together, to hold it all together, to be enough, to fix the shattered mess that you walk around in. I know it seems hopeless. God also knows that it seems hopeless because it is hopeless. What it means to be a Christian is to trust in the fact that God knew it was hopeless and was unwilling to abandon you in it, but instead that God sent his son to come here and live a perfect life, then offer himself as a sacrifice for us. When he died on that cross, that was paying the penalty for my sin and your sin, paying the punishment for that. He took all of our sin on himself and paid for it on the cross. That was another day that Satan thought he won the day. That was another day that Satan thought he won the victory, won the battle. That one didn't last very long. Or three days later, Jesus rises from the grave, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over Satan, fulfilling what God had promised in Genesis chapter 3, and offering all of it, that reconciliation, that new relationship, that hope, that freedom, that forgiveness, offering all of that as a gift to each and every one of us. He's already accomplished it all. What do you, in light of, like, how, how are you going to fix all this? You can't. He has. This morning, all I want to set before you is, will you accept the gift? Will you let him put your life back together? Will you let him give you a new heart? Will you let him give you a new hope for eternity, for this life, for the life to come? Would you let him do that work? He's already accomplished everything there needs to be. It's just, will you put your faith in him, follow him instead of yourself? Our band's gonna come. They're gonna lead us in a time of response. And 
That's what I want us to have an opportunity to focus on. It's just, if you're a believer, is there anything between you and him? And if you're not a believer, are you going to keep trying to paste all the pieces back together, or will you let him do it? Will you trust him? Will you turn from your old life and follow him instead? Would you just, right there where you are, would you just enter a time of prayer? Like, if if you're a believer, would you just start doing some of that work on your own? God, if there's anything between me and you, like, let's deal with that right now. This is a time of response. That's what that's for. If you're not a believer yet, you're not a Christian yet, you're thinking those things through, like I've got a pretty powerful next step for you. In a moment when the band leads us, there's gonna be a team of people back there in the back who want to have a conversation with you about what's going on in your heart. I just wanna pray for you, I just wanna be there for you. That's for you Christians as well. If you want somebody to pray with you and just be honest about something going on with you, our next step seems back there for you. So I'm gonna give you a moment of pray and then our band's gonna lead us in a time of response. This is a time for you to Act on the effects of the fall in your life. Let me pray for you. And you do your work, then also in the band of leaders, okay? Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, we can see the marks of the fall all over us. God, we can see it in the way that we mistrust you. We can see in the way that we doubt you. We can see it in the way that the relationships that we want to have with each other just never seem to come together the way that we want. Like, see the broken pieces laying all around. God, you were bigger than that. And you weren't willing to abandon us to that brokenness. So God, this morning I pray that you just move us to thankfulness, the fact that you chose to come for us. That you weren't willing to, weren't willing to abandon us to our sin, but you came and restored. For my friends in the room who are Christians already. I pray that you just remind them of that fact and help them move towards you right now. For my friends in the room who aren't Christians yet, who haven't trusted you, God, would you just, by your goodness, by your kindness and mercy, would you draw them to yourself right now to trust you in faith? God, as we pray, do supernatural things among us. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. For more sermons like this, you can give us a follow at Spotify or Apple Music. If you want more information about our church, you can check us out at churchattheoaks.com. Church, you are sent.